Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. My name is Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called My Night on the Mountain. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February the 12th, 2017. It's a guest essay by Edwina Gately. Edwina Gately's journey has led her to teaching in Africa, founding the volunteer missionary movement, sojourning in the Sahara Desert, spending nine months of prayer in a trailer in the woods, befriending and ministering to street people and women in prostitution, and preaching the good news that God is with us. Edwina is a poet, theologian, artist, writer, lay minister, modern-day mystic and prophet, and a single mom. She gives talks, conferences, and retreats in the United States, as well as internationally, while continuing to reach out to women in recovery from drugs and prostitution. You can learn more about her at her website, edwinagately.com. Once again, for February the 12th, 2017, My Night on the Mountain. When I read Deuteronomy 30 for this week in my Jerusalem Bible, just three words in particular caught my immediate attention. Obey his voice. <clears throat> I smiled as a vivid memory of doing exactly that many years ago came back to me. There are, of course, many experiences we all have of obeying God's voice at different levels of response and action. But for me, way back at that time, living as a hermit in the Sahara Desert in Algeria for three months, the call to obey <clears throat> was radical and somewhat ridiculous. First of all, I was alone, staying in a tiny hermitage in the middle of nowhere. The hermitage was built for those few folks who sought solitude and prayer hundreds of miles from any human activity. Most of the terrain was sand, which stretched as far as the eye could see. But, in fact, there were also volcanic mountains rising to the heavens. <clears throat> I became acutely conscious of a call from deep within myself to spend a night of prayer and vigil on one of the mountains. Of course, I dismissed such a call. I did not want to climb any mountain, and certainly did not have the slightest desire to sit on top of one all during the night. Scary. Just my imagination. Quite unreasonable. I have since come to understand that, for the most part, our God is unreasonable. The problem was the call persisted. I could not shake it off. I blame myself for repeating prayers like, Here I am, send me, like Isaiah, and for telling God that I would always be faithful and walk in his ways, as we read in this week's Psalm 119. But this was a bit too much. I have come to believe, however, that when we say yes to God, God bugs us into faithfulness and seduces us to go further than we think we can. God is insatiable for us. And so, reluctantly and feeling somewhat ridiculous, 
I set out early one evening with my Bible and a flashlight and began to climb and climb and climb. Eventually, I managed to reach the top of the mountain and settle myself on a ledge overlooking the vast Sahara Desert. I watched the sun go down. Then I watched the moon rise. Clouds began to, to gather and darkness fell. I prayed. The silence all around was powerful. I was so glad I had been faithful. I felt rather pleased with myself that I had said yes to the high standards of God's invitation that we read, for example, in Matthew 5.37 for this week. But in the early morning hours, I heard a rustling sound, like beating wings. I could not see anything, but suddenly something large and flapping flew around me and into my hair. That was it. Peace and prayer shattered. I was terrified. There was a tangible sense of evil which suddenly surrounded me, and I began to tremble. So much for saying yes. <clears throat> In my terror, I did something I had never done before and have never done since. With shaking hands, I switched my flashlight on and held my Bible. Then I pleaded with God as I randomly opened the Bible and looked at the page in front of me. Help me, I said. Speak to me. And immediately my eyes fell on Psalm 91. You need not fear the terror of the night, nor the plague that stalks in darkness. He will put you in his angel's charge to guard you. In that unbelievable moment of revelation, I knew that God was with me. I also knew that because I had said yes, because I had been faithful, God was revealing his presence in a powerful way. I was so relieved and so excited that I did it again. Ah, how we tempt the divine. I closed the Bible and opened it randomly once again, tempting God to reassure me. And, once again, I was blessed as my eyes fell on the words from Psalm 84. Happy the pilgrims inspired by you, with courage to make the ascent. Thence they make their way from height to height, soon to be seen before God on Zion. I was elated and deeply grateful. God had seduced me to a place of faith and revelation. I remained on the mountain until the moon disappeared and the sun arose. There was light, there was comfort, there was hope. I knew with a deep and powerful conviction that has guided my life ever since that in obeying God's voice, God had led me to understand that no matter how afraid we may be, no matter how bad things may seem, no matter the presence of evil in our world, God is with us. Happy indeed are those who walk in God's ways, who, in the words from Deuteronomy for this week, choose life, and who say yes. I'd like to close this week with my poem, Saying Yes, Called to Say Yes. It's from Edwina Gately's book, There Was No Path, So I Trod One. 
We are called to say yes, that the kingdom might break through, to renew and to transform our dark and groping world. We stutter and we stammer to the lone God who calls and pleads a new Jerusalem in the bloodied Sinai Straits. We are called to say yes, that honeysuckle may twine and twist its smelling leaves over the graves of nuclear arms. We are called to say yes, that black may sing with white and pledge peace and healing for the hatred of the past. We are called to say yes, that nations might gather and dance one great movement for the joy of humanity. We are called to say yes to a God who still holds fast to the vision of the kingdom for a trembling world of pain. We are called to say yes to this God who reaches out and asks us to share this amazing dream of love. Edwina Gately, My Night on the Mountain. For books this week, we have a guest book review. Although he's not really a guest, this is a review by David Werther, who for many years was the music editor of Journey with Jesus. This week, David reviews a book called Beatles 66, The Revolutionary Year. The author is Steve Turner, New York Echo, 2016. <clears throat> this book is 464 pages. In Beatles 66, Steve Turner gives long overdue attention to the one year when the Beatles released their first album masterpiece, Revolver, recorded the singles Paperback Writer and Strawberry Fields Forever, and began work on what would eventually become Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Beginning with December 1965, and ending with December 1966, Turner devotes a chapter to each of these 13 months. With this expanded coverage of this pivotal period, we gain a new appreciation for the Beatles' individual interests and inspirations, and their commitment to artistic growth. Turner details the end of the Beatles as a live act, and the emergence of the band as studio musicians bent on breaking the boundaries of popular music. When the Beatles played their last concert on August 29, 1966, at Candlestick Park, they finished up by hearkening back to their rock and roll roots with Little Richard's Long Tall Sally. In contrast, Revolver ended with Tomorrow Never Knows, a song that John Lennon wrote using a single chord, recording with distorted vocal and tape loops, and opening with a line from a Timothy Leary paraphrase of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The Beatles couldn't have played Tomorrow Never Knows live, even if they had wanted to. But after tear gas and guard dogs in Germany, over 8,000 police officers keeping the peace and protecting them in Tokyo, a faux pas in the Philippines that led to John and Ringo being roughed up in the Manila airport, and the more popular-than-Jesus controversy plaguing them on their U.S. states, 
The fact that they could not perform their new work live was irrelevant. In fact, they had no intention of ever touring again. The Beatles had outgrown the world of fandom and entertainment. On tour, they could not hear themselves play their 35-minute sets. In the studio, with George Martin's help, they could work unhurried, pushing the boundaries of the sounds and lyrics of popular music in songs like Tomorrow Never Knows and Strawberry Fields Forever. The author Steve Turner thus writes, From this distance, it is hard to appreciate what a huge step the Beatles initially took by writing songs that were not about boy-girl relationships or youthful pursuits like dancing, driving, and listening to music. Almost all previous pop music was about love or lust. Very occasionally, someone went beyond the boundaries, but even so, these songs were usually only expressed other forms of adolescent angst. Steve Turner's detailed description of the advances the Beatles made individually and collectively in the one year 1966 is a fine addition to his two earlier works on the Beatles. First, The Gospel According to the Beatles, 2006, and then The Stories Behind Every Track Written by the Fab Four, 2015. A guest book review by David Werther. The author is Steve Turner. The title, Beatles 66, The Revolutionary Year. For movies this week, I return to Portlandia 2016. This is season six. Started in 2011, by writers, producers, and actors Carrie Brownstein and Fred Amason, award-winning Portlandia continues its satirical ways about all things hip in Portland. The coffee culture, feminist bookstores, artisan light bulbs, the allergy pride parade, bicycle rights activists, free-range chicken, personally carved ice cubes, and so on. But let's not hate on Portland. Berkeley, Madison, Austin, or Asheville all have shops like Oblique Coffee in the Artisan Knots bread store. This being 2016, an episode in the newest season takes us to the Pickathon Music Festival to hear the headlining group The Flaming Lips. To avoid the lines, the crowds, the porta potties, and the heat, they quote unquote attend the festival virtually, that is, in the comfort of their living room, thanks to two drones. In an article about Portlandia in The New Yorker from 2012, Brownstein recalls standing in line at Whole Foods when a guy complained that they didn't carry, quote, locally made fresh pasta, to which the cashier responded, sure we do, right there. The guy responded, no, that's from Seattle. Brownstein concludes, really? You don't have a bigger battle? Indeed. There are now 57 episodes of Portlandia in its six seasons, each of which is about 20 minutes long, 
All of them are available on Netflix, which is where I watched Portlandia 2016, Season 6. And for poetry this week, one of my all-time favorite poem prayers by C.S. Lewis. It's called Footnote to All Prayers. He whom I bow to only knows to whom I bow. When I attempt the ineffable name, murmuring thou, and dream of Phidian fancies and embrace in heart symbols I know which cannot be the thing thou art. Thus always taken at their word, all prayers blaspheme, worshiping with frail images a folklore dream. And all men in their praying, self-deceived, address the coinage of their own unquiet thoughts, unless... Thou in magnetic mercy to thyself divert our arrows, aimed unskillfully, beyond desert. And all men are idolaters, crying unheard to a deaf idol, if thou take them at their word. Take not, O Lord, our literal sense. Lord, in thy great unbroken speech, our limping metaphor, translate. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, February 12, 2017, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.